Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. Today, it's our 50th episode. <laughs> Yay! Yay! So, we'd like to thank everyone, all of our listeners who have been following us even from the beginning, or if you've just joined, thank you very much. We hope that you've enjoyed our podcast so far. We've really enjoyed making it, and thank you for bearing with us with you know the late uploads that happen every once in a while, and all the other things. I know that there was a period of time that it was a bit of a difficult t- uh, time to be a podcast listener for us, but we really appreciate everything that you've been around and that you've actually been listening to our podcast. So we really appreciate that you've been around, you've been listening to our podcast, and we really hope that you continue to enjoy all of our content. Without further ado, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to make it to you know a big set of organized gaming in a while, but a friend of ours did host uh, kind of a small game night at her residence hall. She's an RA, and she was like, hey, we're going to have some pretty entry-level board games. We're going to have some of my friends come by who enjoy playing games, who enjoy explaining games. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. There were some people there who I had never seen before at any of our events, and we got to just kind of sit down with them and say, hey, you know, these are pretty straightforward board games and what would you like to play so that was a lot of fun we played a couple games of fairy tale which i've mentioned a few times and that was really really popular i got rave reviews and i was happy to point out that it was a gift from you so that was cool still have not played with the advanced rules yet with the extra cards specifically the uh, tale cards i think they're called or story cards which just add like a lot of extra synergies to the deck and that sort of thing So that'll be interesting to play with once I do eventually get around to it. But we also had a chance to play Codenames with the the two sets mixed. So we played Codenames plus Codenames Pictures together on one board. And that was pretty much exactly as confusing and difficult as I think we both thought it would be. Yep. It's just, you know, you try to come up with something and you just say, okay, well, I can match the words or I can match the pictures. But there's not... It's... It's obviously doable, um, but it's just very difficult to come up with something that kind of works across both mediums. And I think it adds just an extra element of the cerebral challenge that is trying to get your teammates to understand exactly what you're talking about. Which can be a lot of fun, I think. It's definitely something that, as long as it's not overdone, it could be quite enjoyable. Right, yeah. And, you know, if you just you know mix and match maybe every other game, every third game, something like that, from a design standpoint... Uh, quick aside, the the makers of Codenames, and I think we mentioned this in our review, did a really, really good job of separating the two. The pictures cards are, you know, kind of square size, as opposed to the word cards, which are about rectangle size, half the size, which makes taking down a game that you've played mixed super, super easy. Because then you can just say, okay, we're just going to separate these by size, put them in their respective boxes, and done. So, you know, that's something that we've commented on before with regard to not knowing which cards or which pieces come from which expansion. So this was really refreshing and also, you know, kudos to to them for, for coming up with that design choice. Yep, definitely. And it also makes the pictures a bit more clear. True. Yeah, those tiny little pictures would probably be, be pretty tough to deal with. Exactly. Those weren't the only games we played. We also had a chance to play Cosmic Encounter, which I had never actually played before. So I was the learner in that particular situation. And it was interesting uh, for a game that has such simple core mechanics, you know, take your ships, go here, attack, put down some numbers. There's a lot of variation that comes from the races. 
Like, you have the core mechanic of attacking and settling colonies and negotiating versus attacking and all of that sort of thing, which, if it were just by itself, the game would be totally boring and probably not even playable. But the races are so unique, and some of them are so powerful. One of the people in our group, the <laughs> the person with whom I ended up co-winning, we negotiated and agreed to each allow each other to settle our fifth colonies. He was the mirror, which says whenever you're in a combat, you can switch the digits on the attack cards. So like if you play a four, that can become a 40, which is just crazy powerful. Like I can't even wrap my head around some of these. And I ended up getting the zombies, which is you can't lose ships. And one of our friends was the void, which is instead of sending ships to the warp, they're just removed from the game. So I'm just sitting here like, oh my God, this is so mind blowing. I can't even, like they changed the game so dramatically. Yeah, and it's actually one of my top games. I love Cosmic Encounter. It's the first game that I ever got an organizer for, like a nice wooden organizer for it. And there are 95 races currently out. Is that how many there are? Not in that game, but including all the expansions. Uh They have 95 races. Or I think it might be like 96, 97 because there are a few promos. But yeah, there are, I think, six expansions currently. The base game, I believe, can play up to five people. Yeah. Then... Every expansion adds another person that can play. Oh, wow. So I think that they recommend only going up to like seven or eight. Right. But at the same time, you can play with more. Yeah, I was going to say, like getting a much larger game or really getting that many more races Mm -hmm. seems like it would just be overwhelming. It can be. And like you're never going to you're never going to have the same game twice, which is awesome. And each of the races breaks it in a different way. And actually, I was watching a game of this uh, when I was at Gamers and they decided to go full role play on this where they actually like role played the races that they were so like one of them was the peddler and he like pretended to be like a used car salesman kind of thing like uh, and and he was able to like trade his cards with other people and that kind of stuff one of them was a hypochondriac he literally took out one of those face masks put that on and uh, what he can do is that whenever so uh, he is quote unquote uncomfortable with someone he can ask them to you know give him stuff so cards and other things like that until he's comfortable with it otherwise he gives them a hypochondriac token and if you have the most hypochondriac tokens you cannot win wow so god some of these just seem from a game balance standpoint like they'd be so hard to to work with i mean every single one of the races in cosmic encounter breaks it in a different way and that's why this game works and this is why a game from the 70s is still being around and iterated to this day i I guess so like it's really well designed and they keep iterating on it they keep supporting it with more and more stuff this is like the third company that has put out cosmic encounter there was uh, i don't even remember who the original one was then there's the avalon hill version and then there's uh this one They've done a great job with it so far. I really enjoy it. I I have one of the expansions as well, and it's just, it works. It has a, a lot of replayability. Like you can always just play it. And unless you play with some people who can be really cheap, for the most part, there's like some people who get pissy with any kind of game. Sure. But for the most part, it's a lot of fun, very simple rules, and it's a game that you can just you know sit down, like, even with someone new, boom start playing speaking of which there's also a card called greenhorn which is there are a few mechanics in cosmic encounter that 
are not as intuitive even if you've played other board games. Mm -hmm. For example, you don't draw cards. Right, yeah, that was a little bit tough to grasp at first. You know, you kind of had to wait until you're gone and then refill completely. Yeah. So. so the green corn can draw two cards per turn. I believe they, they can join any alliance on either side whenever they want. They don't have to be asked. They can just join because otherwise you have to be asked to join something. Right, right. It, I, it, I, I had forgotten that part, so yeah. I was like, wait a minute, can't anyone do that? Nope. And then every turn what they have to do is that they have to look at one of their cards and like go, lean over to the person next to them and ask some, uh, some question about the card. Oh. <laughs> okay, that's... Uh, so yeah, yeah. And, and then there are other things like, uh, for example, one race that ha can ask a yes or no question that the other person must answer truthfully. And then if you have the flare card, which are the power up of the, of the power mm -hmm. themselves. So if you have the flare card, it doesn't have to be a yes or no question. Just any question? Any question. Amazing. And, and the people that play this, like, that I've, I was watching, they were telling me about this later on, is that they will literally ask any question. Like, any question. All right, that sounds pretty dangerous. That's some <laughs> truth or dare stuff going on right there. I don't know how I feel about that. Exactly. It's, it's just funny how like all these different things like, go into each other and like just work. Right. So... It's a lot of fun. I definitely enjoy Cosmic, and I haven't played it in a while, but I should definitely pick it up again. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to, uh, to play it again sometime. So. Yeah, definitely. Well, there you have it. That's what we've been playing. When Cardium Leviosa... No, no, it's Wingardium Leviosa, not Leviosa. You should know this. You're at wizard school. Well, I mean, I just started, so... But, I mean, I think that that's a perfect time to review the, the game. I would hope so. So, Wizard School is the first game from DFTBA Games. If that acronym sounds familiar, it's because it stands for Don't Forget to Be Awesome, which is the moniker of Hank and John Green, which is really super exciting for me and for Jacob, because we're both, you know, nerd fighters from way back. Yep. We've been watching their videos for a long time. We really appreciate their content, their sort of unique style. So the opportunity to play a game that was developed by them and by some of their team is just a whole lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. I've really enjoyed this and I've been looking forward to this game since it was announced. Right. So let's talk some about the mechanics of the game. It's really pretty straightforward. You all play students attempting to cooperatively make it through the school year. Each of you has a grade from A to F. And if at any time one of your people, one of the people in your group, is failing, you all lose. So it's, it's just straight up pass-fail. Either everybody makes it to graduation or everybody loses. Yep, exactly. And the way that you play this is that you have your graduation milestones. You have four, uh, four years normally in which you have to get through all four of those years in order to pass the entire school. In each of these four years, you each take turns to do a few different things. You start with going to school. So what that means is that you go ahead and draw a card from the school deck. The school deck contains three different types of cards. You have the monster cards, the activity cards, and the test cards. Right. The monster cards are cards that will stay out in front of everyone. And when they are activated, which we'll talk about a little bit later, they will attack whoever is the active player. The tests are unique to each student. So if I draw a test, it stays in front of me until I pass it. 
And then the activities are one-time events that happen. Some of them could be good, some of them can be bad, that just immediately happen as soon as you draw them, and then it's done. Right. And so each of these different types of cards is going to have slightly different effects. Each monster is going to, one, you know, like we mentioned, activate at a different particular time under different conditions. But in addition to that, they're going to have different effects. So some of them might say, when this attacks, the active player discards a card. Or when this attacks, the active player goes down one grade. Something like that. So monsters, tests, these are things that you're really going to want to make sure you take care of. And that comes during the second step of each turn, the action phase. Exactly. So the action phase, you can do a few different things. So you can attack a monster, take a test, attempt a milestone for your graduation card, study, drawing your card, an all-nighter, which you can discard cards in order to take more actions. So if right. you discard three cards, you get to take two more actions. Right. Tutor, so one of your uh, mates is failing, go ahead and discard one of your cards and bring them up a grade. Socialize, trade cards with uh, up to three cards with other wizards. Panic, Discard the top card from the from the actual school deck. Panicking, of course, being something that every student will recognize. Yep. And then exploring. And uh, this is t- drawing another card from the school deck and then immediately resolving it. Yep. So the attacking, the taking a test, and the attempting a milestone on a graduation card all use pretty much the same mechanics. And what that is is all based on the magic cards you have in your hand as well as the signature spells and items that you have with your wizard. Exactly. And so the monster that you'll be facing has what's referred to as a specific magical power. So that's a number of circles that appear in the top left corner of the card, and they can be anywhere usually from 1 to 5. Some effects may increase or decrease their effective power, but usually 1 to 5 is the range. And each of those circles also has a color corresponding to certain schools of magic. So there's pretty standard stuff, things like conjuration, transmutation, illusion, all those sorts of things. And so whenever you attack a monster, take a test, anything like that, you're trying to make sure that you meet or exceed the number and color of those magical power. So say you're facing a monster that has three illusion symbols. That means that through some combination of spells, items, and magical friends, you need to meet or exceed three illusion. So the first thing that you do whenever you attack a monster, you cast a spell. Most of the time, this will be a spell from your hand. Spells from your hand, they're represented by cards, they have a certain level of power, and frequently they'll have special additional effects. If you can't or don't want to play spells from your hand, you can also use what's called your signature spell. Each student has specific signature spells that allow them to cast, essentially, one power of any particular school. And now, for some of the students, that can be just one. That will say, you can cast a signature spell of one transmutation. And for others, that'll say, you can cast transmutation or illusion, that sort of thing. So in the latter case, you'd say, all right, I'm going to cast my one illusion signature spell and then supplement that with a magical friend. Magical friends are things that you can add on top of the spells or signature spells that you cast in order to give yourself an additional power boost. And then finally, you can also have one other friend, a player friend, assist you by casting a spell. Your player friend can't actually use their signature spell to help you because they can only use that on their turn. But so say you use your one illusion spell, they contribute one additional illusion spell, and then you play a magical friend that gives you one illusion magical power. It's not a spell necessarily, but it puts one power into play. Now you've defeated the monster, 
and you get to draw cards or increase a grade, whatever the reward is that's appropriate for the particular monster. And that's the same mechanic as for tests, as for achieving a milestone. It uses all the same play a spell, ask for allies, play magical friends mechanics. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the cards before we continue. So you have the three different types of cards that you can draw that are in your hand. There are the magical friends, the item cards, and the spell cards. Each of these can be used in very specific circumstances. The spell cards can be used whenever you are attempting an attack uh, for a monster, a test, or a uh, milestone. And those, as Greg said, each have a certain amount of, of magic and like powers and that kind of stuff, and then also some kind of text at the bottom that will give you a special effect. The item cards can be played at any time during your turn, and those you can only have as many as your backpack can fit on your character. And they can give you ongoing things, like they can improve the power of your signature spell, or they can give you the ability to save cards that have been used and take them back into your hand if you flip a coin correctly. And the last kind is the magical friends. These can be used at literally any point during the game. There is no point where you should not be able to use a magical friend, and the effect goes into, uh, goes into play immediately. can be on your turn, can be on someone else's turn, can be when a monster attacks, anything. Right. So the lots of different types of cards are really very versatile, but magical friends even more so. Yes, exactly. So now let's talk a little bit about the school strikes back step which is the third step when playing the game. And so the school deck has, on top of the, each of the cards, a different back which has different symbols. And so these can be like a green monster, a red monster, or an F minus, are the three that they have. And they each mean different things. So when the school strikes back, whatever is on the card that is on top of the school deck is what happens. So these can be either one or two symbols, so there could be a combination of things. But if there's a red monster on top of it, and you see this throughout your entire turn, you know what's going to be on top, so you can prepare. So if there's a red monster on top, the red monsters will activate that turn, and whoever is the active player will get hit by any of the red monster's uh, powers. So, you know, if there's a particularly bad red monster, that means that, oh no, we really have to destroy this thing before it hits you. Uh, like, you know, or we lose the game or, you know, you lose the best things about your character or whatever. And it's a really cool mechanic. I like the fact that it has on the back, like, the little symbols and they uh, activate and you can see it throughout the entire turn so you can plan for it. And it, it's, I think, a really good, well-done mechanic. Agreed. So those are really the core mechanics that happen from turn to turn. But then there's also the progression mechanics that we should talk about. And there's really two of those. Each student has a double-sided, oversized card. On one side, that represents them as an underclassman, and on the other side, it represents them as an upperclassman. And so on the underclassman side, the side that you start with, that gives you what your signature spell is, it gives you your signature ability, and then it also gives you a goal. So for example, one character might say, your signature ability allows you to flip a coin. If you succeed, you save a spell. That is, if you succeed, you get to return that spell from the discard pile where it would be headed after you play it to your hand. And then it has an upperclassman goal of save five spells. So once you've achieved your upperclassman goal, you actually flip over your student card and now you're more powerful. For some students, that takes the form of them having stronger signature spells. It can be that they have more versatility, they get perhaps a third option that they can cast, 
or for some students, it actually becomes just more powerful. It gives you two magical power instead of one, but also, and more importantly, your signature ability levels up. And so uh, in the example that we were using where it said flip a coin to save a spell, their upperclassmen side might instead say once per turn, save a spell. So there's no, it takes the chance all out of it. It's, it's much more consistent, much more secure, much more powerful. So that's one form of progression. And then the other form is actually graduating and moving from year to year. And that is done through milestones. And those milestones are determined by what cards you have for graduation from each year. Each one of them is a different difficulty. So freshman year is usually easy. Sophomore year is more difficult. Junior year is even more. And then senior year is the hardest. And each of these cards has three milestones. There is an incentive to do them in order. So they're labeled one, two, and three. And uh, that's when you actually get to get the rewards from the milestones, because if you do them out of order, you don't get the rewards. Uh, the milestones themselves can be many different things. So especially in the earlier levels, they, a lot of them have to do with defeating certain monsters and that kind of stuff. So if you defeat a monster that has three of any kind of power or above, then you achieve a milestone. Or they can also have specific things that you have to attack the milestone to achieve it. So it could be attack the milestone four, five, you know, of any, color, any kind of magic. Boom, you do that, you achieve the milestone. Once you have completed the three milestones on the card, the player's turn ends immediately. Nothing else happens. The school does not strike back. Nothing else happens. So then you go to the next year, the next player's turn begins, and you start from there. The other thing that I didn't mention is that each of the cards has an ability on the bottom. When it comes into play, something happens or something ongoing happens. A lot of times the freshman year ones are even positive, so they you know help you out. You can do extra things by discarding cards, getting an extra action, for example, or drawing an extra card at some point or other. As they go on in difficulty, it gets harder and harder, and each of the milestone like cards has a more difficult like effect. Like, you can't. One of them is you cannot use your signature spell to attack monsters, or each of the monsters their power is doubled. Something like that. Right. These can be some really, really powerful effects. So there's sort of a strategic element involved there because of the, you know, when you complete it, this ends your turn immediately. You kind of have to balance between, okay, when do we want to, you know, how long do we want to preserve this effect if it's a, a freshman card? Or how quickly do we want to rush down this effect if it's one of the later term cards? Versus, you know, when is it most advantageous to, you know, if we graduate from a particular year, on this turn, we can avoid going down a grade because of school striking back. So there's a, a little bit of an element there that is a, a lot of fun and adds some depth to it. Also, another thing with the finishing a grade is if you have any tests that are still in front of you, you lose a grade for every test that you have. Right, very important. So you have to be careful of that as well. So you know, if one wizard has like three tests out in front, it's not a good idea to to go ahead and you know graduate that turn and wait until they actually finish their tests. Absolutely. That's the general way of how to play Wizard School. So what do you think about the overall feel of the game? Overall, I think it, it works. Obviously, being a game developed by nerdfighters for nerdfighters, there's a lot of references. You know, there's, there's Buffy the Vampire Slayer references, Harry Potter references, obviously. There's, you know, a Sparkly Vampire and all those sorts of things. So in terms of the, the theme, I think it's a lot of fun. It's very enthusiastic, but I do feel like sometimes it goes a little bit too far. Um, you know, I think they kind of err on the side of silliness, as you put it. 
which, you know, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it can make the game a little bit grating sometimes, especially when it's kicking your ass. Exactly, exactly. Another thing is that this game relies on so much on chance. Like, almost every single card, or at least like 50% of the cards, have a coin flip involved. Right. And I was actually noticing this. We played two games just to kind of refresh ourselves right before we recorded this. And the first time, we both had students who were fairly chance-based. You know, they could save cards or they could do things, but it was it always involved a coin flip. Whereas the second time, we both had students who, once they flipped to their upperclassmen side, the additional effect that they received was guaranteed. And it was just so much easier. You know, it was, it was quicker. It was less like pulling teeth, yeah. you know, because you didn't have to worry about that chance. You just were able to count on having one extra action per turn or being able to save a really powerful spell that you yeah. returned to your hand like four times that single-handedly got us through three grades. Yeah. So I think that from a like a game feel standpoint of being chance-based, it leads to mechanically some of the students being much stronger, really, than the others. Yeah, and another thing is just about how the game pace works. So the game is a little bit slow in general. It has a bit of the issue where you know at the beginning you're really trying to you know get some stuff you, you can rush through the beginning but then that's not good for the rest of the game even as hank said at the beginning it's like it might be a good idea to you know get yourself more powerful at the very low end and then keep going up as you you know get more and more powerful but at the same time this really affects the pacing it does get to be a little bit tedious in that case though they do have a built-in remedy for that they do they definitely do and what that is, is that the milestone cards, uh, they are separated by year. So you have your freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year. And the difficulty, you know, goes that way. They can be mixed and matched however you'd like. So if you want a quick game, you might want to do, you know, two cards. And just do those two and finish the game like that. Uh, if you want a more difficult game, go ahead and do all four senior year cards. Or something like that or you know mix and match them however you like maybe one freshman year and then three senior year ones so that you can get all of your stuff you need in freshman year and then go through three difficult ones to see how much this can kick your butt so it really does have that nice modularity i think and i definitely appreciate that from a game design standpoint that you can customize the difficulty to whatever you want i do wish that they'd given you a little bit more of a guide as to oh, this is too easy, why don't you try this combination because it works pretty well, or this combination, or don't skip the freshman one because you still need to power up a little bit, but maybe skip the sophomore or something like that. Right, there's a lot of versatility there, um, and I think it's something, it's a mechanic that encourages a lot of exploration and a lot of repeated play, which from a design standpoint, again, very good. One of the other things that I think is really effective about it is that it scales really quite well. You know, you, you have the pretty standard mechanic of the fewer players there are, the more cards each of them draws. So there's a, a balancing aspect there. But also with the the ability of non-active players to assist the active player, you kind of circumvent some of the problems that normally come with a, a situation where monsters from a communal pool are attacking each turn in the way that it sort of, in a game like Shadow Rift, might scale out of control. The players can't necessarily do enough to staunch the tide. I think this game, with some of its mechanics, actually works its way around that so that if you can go up to four or five players, it still feels manageable. For all this, no game is perfect. 
and we we definitely identified a few things that we wish would be changed the first thing is the rules so the rules of this game i mean the basics of the game are pretty simple uh, the turn order the mechanics good then you get into the wording the specifics and that is where it falls flat you have a lot of effects, especially the one that we noticed the most is the saving mechanic. Absolutely. Which was not explained until the very end of the rule book. So it's at the very end of that rule book that it has like one little paragraph about the saving mechanic. And even that does not answer all the questions that we had about the mechanic. Right. There's lots of contradictions, you know, under that specific rule blurb, it says that only the active player can save and only you know, if it's a, a spell or a card that they themselves played, but then save is a mechanic that frequently appears on magical friend cards, which, as we pointed out earlier, can be played literally any time, whether it's your turn or not. So there's just a lot of ambiguity, and it, it doesn't, you know, the rulebook doesn't even include the pretty standard disclaimer of golden rule if a card text disagrees with the rules text, go with one or the other, you know, so we can make inferences, but there's a lot of unknown there. Exactly. And the organization of the actual rulebook itself is also leaves a bit to be desired. It is not intuitive compared to a lot of the other rulebooks that I've seen. Not the worst, but definitely not intuitive. Agreed. Um, one of the other things that we thought was a little bit confusing and maybe detrimental to the game was the fact that if you attack with a signature spell, you cannot also play a spell, which from the nomenclature makes perfect sense. But once you kind of get into the gameplay, the signature spell feels more like a bonus. It really feels more like something that should be a proficiency, I suppose you could call it, so that you know you can add one of a particular color to any attack in addition to whatever spell you play. Because just from a, a sort of a mental standpoint, that's the way I at least, and I think you as well, approached it. You know, it really felt like it should be additive rather than exclusive. But obviously, that's very nitpicky, um, but it is something that's going to you know, kind of sit at the front of your brain, and you have to constantly catch yourself. And from a, you know, a, a flow of play standpoint, that can be really disruptive. Yeah. Another thing that I will say is the components. They do not live up to what I expect from board game components in this day and age. The cards, after four plays of this game, already the cards on the edges are starting to wear off, the color is starting to wear, and it's just... It's not something that you would expect from a well-made board game. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that there are actually miss pieces missing. So it talks about markers that you place on the, um, the milestone cards to indicate that you have done them. And there's nothing like that to be found. There are only pawns, which you can use, but they're also not very well suited to this use. And then another thing is just, you know, for example, if you have to save five cards, how do you normally keep track of that? And it's that kind of thing. We use dice because I have a ton of dice. But not everyone who buys this game is going to have the dice floating around to right. keep track of that. And then you have to be like, wait a minute, did I do four or three? And then that just completely you know, invalidates the, the whole rule. Right. So these are all the things. That's how the game feels. That's what we think could be better. Big picture. What do you say? I, unfortunately, I'm going to say skip it. I really wanted to like this game. I really wanted to say a play it or buy it. When I first saw it, I was extremely excited for it. But the way that I played it the last few times and just the rule, uh, the problems with the rule clarity and the components just not being there and just the pacing of the game, it just felt 
boring to me. When I was sitting through today and it just really did not excite me and it, it just didn't have what I look for in most cooperative games, which I love. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to say I skip it. All right. Uh, I'm going to go with the play it. I think there's there's a lot of elements at the core of this that are really well done. I think that the you know the there's the straightforward mechanics of go to school, take your actions, school strikes back are well designed, but there is some stuff around the edges, you know, with regard to the rules and the clarity that you mentioned that do kind of make the playability an issue. And then also the the theme is just very gimmicky and I could absolutely see it wearing thin after, you know, five or ten games. So for me, and I think for the generic gamer, it's a play it. There you go. So now let's compare it a few a little bit to other games. I'm going to start, and I'm going to say a game that we've already talked about, and that is Shadow Rift. So Shadow Rift is another game in which you are playing cooperatively with the other people around the table, and you are working on you know, defeating monsters, so similar kind of theme, and everyone has their own specialty and other things like that. You try to specialize. Shadow Rift is more of a deck building game, but it's still mostly card based and it's still getting like all these other things that you need to have. And it has a similar feel, and it's definitely a nice cooperative, like magic kind of based game. Right. It's also less punishing than Shadow Rift. Yes, it is definitely less punishing than Shadow Rift. For me personally, this game feels like nothing so much as a cooperative munchkin. A lot of the mechanics with the monsters and the test being put into play, items out in front of you, spells that you can play from your hand, even the art style, very evocative of munchkin. So if you like that sort of quick paced, kind of uh, RPG light, gameplay but don't like the cutthroat aspects don't like the pvp i would actually highly recommend that you pick up wizard school i think it's very similar but simply cooperative and the last one that i'll recommend is harry potter the uh, battle for hogwarts deck building game it's one that i've mentioned on the podcast before and this one is especially because of theme i mean if you want it to play a game where you are in a wizard school and you are fighting bad like people monsters that kind of stuff this is the game for you. It is probably the best one that I've played so far. It's a deck building game, uh, but it still has a lot of those aspects. It really captures the whole theme, and I highly recommend that one if that's the kind of theme that you are looking for. And there you have it. That's our review of Wizard School. Thank you for joining us on this, our 50th episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check out our new social media posts every week, What's Fresh Wednesdays, when we talk about what's new on Kickstarter. And be sure to join us next week when we interview the creator of Dragon Brew, the game about fantasy brewing. And in the meantime, go check it out on Kickstarter.